Open up your Bibles to the book of Revelation, so the last book in your Bible. Um, We are finished with our uh, series on Job, and we're going to be moving on to a short series in the book of Revelation. And so today we're going to start with the uh, very first chapter, so the first chapter in uh, the book of Revelation. Book of Revelation chapter 1. So the only way I know how to do this uh, well is to go ahead and read the entire chapter, and I think we'll be blessed by that. And so I'm going to read chapter 1 all the way through, so uh, follow along in in your Bibles. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you have seen, what you see in a book. And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna, to Pergamum and Thyatira, to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would do this morning just what Revelation 1 does, which is give us a glimpse of your glory. Father, show us the glory of the Lord Jesus. Show us his attributes. Show us his power. Show us his His might. Show us his eternality. And I pray, Father, that we might be forever changed by the glimpse of Christ that we see this morning. Father, do your work in us. 
Lord Jesus, we, we believe by what you just told us that you are in our midst, that you dwell amidst the churches. We pray, Father, that you would use your, your sword to shape and mold us today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The first five words of this book uh, are incredibly important. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay? So when you think about this book, I want you to remember those first five words because that is what the entire book is about. It is about the revealing, okay, the making known of the glorious resurrected Jesus Christ. When you open up your New Testament, you find Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what do you find in those books? You find God stepping out of the heavens into human flesh, right? You find the human Jesus, okay? So the human Jesus, by that I don't, I don't mean he's less God. I mean he's 100% God, 100% man. But you see him as a man, okay? And so you open up the Gospels and you see Jesus traveling with the disciples and eating and drinking and sleeping with them and, 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 and doing miracles and, and raising the dead and doing all that he did in his earthly ministry. And then you see Jesus on the cross, and, and Brother Gary looked at that Friday night and we, we talked about the cross. We talked about our sins placed on Jesus and, and him dying for our sins and then being put in the grave, in the tomb. Okay, but what we see in Revelation is Jesus is not still on the cross. He is not still in the tomb. He is alive and very well, okay? And correct, very well. And so what we see in Revelation is the revealing of the Jesus that you've got to deal with today. Okay, so the Jesus that you've got you've to you've do something with, you've got to either respond in obedience to or reject, that Jesus is what is revealed to us very clearly here in John, or in Revelation chapter 1. Now, verse 3 tells us a pretty encouraging thing about this. It says, blessed, so blessed is fortunate or, or happy or um, flourishing, is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. And so we have a blessing for not only hearing the word of God and, and, and embracing it, but notice that last part, who hear and who keep what is written in it. Pastor Daniel and I spend a lot of time just in personal discipleship with guys. And one of the things that we, we, we always emphasize as we read the word of God is, hey, you know what? We're not here to just know things about the word. We're here to obey it. We're here to respond to it, okay? So it's, it's hearing and, and, and then keeping the Word of God, responding to the Word of God. And so what we want to do this morning as we look at this glimpse of Jesus, the Jesus of today, the resurrected Jesus, is we want not, not only just do we want to hear that, but we want to respond to that. Verse 9 tells us the author of this book. The author is John. John is the same guy, the same apostle who wrote the Gospel of John and then the epistles of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. We were just in 1st John. Remember that? Uh, just not too long ago, we had a whole series on, on, in 1st John. Okay, this is the same John. At this time in his life, he's in his 90s, okay? Uh, he's, an, he's an older gentleman, all right? We say it that way. Uh, he's an older guy. He's in his 90s. He, he has gotten in trouble for preaching the Gospel. Uh, he's in his 90s. He's still serving the Lord, preaching the gospel. He's gotten in trouble for that. Uh, people didn't like what he had to say about Christ, didn't like what he had to say about truth. And so they rounded him up, put him on a ship, took him out in the ocean, and put him on a, a penal colony, a, a rock out in the, about 60 miles outside of Greece in the ocean. And that is where John writes this book. Now, John describes himself as verse, in verse 9, I like this, as a brother, first of all. So he's, he's a fellow Christian. He's a partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and, and the patient endurance there in Jesus. I, 
I love how he describes himself. He says, basically, guys, I'm going through what you're going through. That, that's, that's what he's saying. Now, at this time, they're, they're being persecuted, and so John is, is revealing that, man, I'm going through the hard times that you're going through. But notice he says, in the patient endurance that are in Jesus Christ. Hey, it's not easy to be a Christian. It takes some patient endurance. And I believe what John does here for us and what God does for us in the book of Revelation is it, is it gives us such a vision of Christ that, 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 that we are enabled to keep going in the Christian life. You remember last week? What did Job need? Here's a guy who's lost everything, who's lost his family, he's lost his possessions, he's lost, he's lost everything. And, and, and what does he need? Well, we saw that last week, man. What Job needed more than, more than anything was a glimpse of the glory of God. Once he got that, it straightened everything out. You know what I mean? No more questions, no more, I mean, he's good. He's transformed and it led to his restoration. All right, and so I believe the same thing is happening here in the book of Revelation. John's saying, hey, guys, I'm with you. I'm with you in these hard times we're going through. I'm with you in this patient endurance that it demands to be a Christian. And I want to show you what I saw so that you'll be able to live for Christ. You'll be able to love your brother. You'll be able to persevere in obedience in the same way that I am. In verse 10 and 11, John describes the method of this book. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Here's an interesting thing. Some people think that that means Easter, okay? It very well may. I don't think that we can prove that. I think it more, more likely just means Sunday, probably. Uh, but some people think it's Easter Sunday, so it's kind of cool to say on Easter Sunday. Uh, that's the only reason I said it. Um, and I heard behind me a loud voice, like a trumpet, saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. All right, now that explains a lot about why this book is so strange, Okay. Now, we haven't got to the strange part yet, maybe a little bit, but, you, you know, we're going to get to some stuff here that you're like, what in the world is that, you know? What, what's that creature? What is that? You know, what is that? Okay, well, well, what's happening here is John is having to write down what he sees, okay? Now, that's a hard thing if you're, if you're seeing things that are supernatural. It's a hard thing anyway. Have you ever been to the Grand Canyon? We were just there a couple months ago. Can you imagine taking a pen and paper out and write down what you see, you know? What, what are you going to write? What are you going to write that, that, that accurately describes the Grand Canyon? Big ditch. Very deep. Oh, I got, no. I mean, man, that's a hard job, isn't it? Okay, but yet really it's, it's not that hard because we have a reference for big ditches. We have a reference for ditches. You crossed one when you came across to the parking lot. Did you see that? You know, you crossed the little Lincoln ditch there, okay, the, the drainage ditch, all right? So you've got a reference. Now you got to do is make that bigger, you know, take the cement out in your mind, make it bigger, 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 really bigger, all right? And, you know, put some, you know, erosion in it and some colors and, and you know, you could kind of have, okay, but what, how are you going to, how are you going to explain seeing the glorified Jesus, all right? How are you going to explain seeing the end of the world, all right? So John is writing these things down. He's trying to describe what he is seeing in this book. Now, very important, okay? In just a minute, we're gonna give you a glimpse of who is Jesus, okay? The resurrected Jesus here. But before we do that, I want you to, I want you to look at where is Jesus, okay? So in a minute, we're gonna look at his characteristics, who he is, okay? Before we get there, where is he? Well, verse 12 and 13 says, John's seeing this vision. He sees seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Okay, now, if you've read the book of Daniel, that you pick up on that as Jesus right away, don't you? You remember in the book of Daniel, uh, where Daniel sees God, he sees the Ancient of Days, that's Daniel 7, 9, 
As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, and his clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head was pure wool, okay, very similar to Jesus. And then later on in, in that same chapter, in verse 13, I saw the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. That's Jesus in the Old Testament, okay? And so now you're getting the same phrase from now. So now John sees these lampstands, and he sees one like the Son of Man in the middle of them with seven stars in his hand. That's in verse 16. Now verse 20 is the interpretation. Aren't you glad when you get the interpretation? That's pretty cool. Jesus tells us, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the seven angels, the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, so answering the question, we get a glimpse of the resurrected Jesus, present day, right now. Where is Jesus? He's in the midst of the church. Isn't that cool? You don't think so? Come on! Where is he? He's in the church. You, you, you get this vision of seven golden lampstands that represent these seven churches that John's about to write to. And where does he see Jesus? In the midst of them. He's in the midst of the land. He's in the midst of the churches. And he holds seven stars in his right hand. What do those seven stars represent? Well, it says the angels of the seven churches. Now, how do you interpret that? Because the word angel is the exact same word for messenger in the Greek language. So it's the same word. Actually, angels are messengers. That's what they are. They're just heavenly messengers, okay? So do you interpret that as they are? They are every church has an angel, okay? If you want to, that's great. You know, I, I can't prove that to you. I can't tell you right or wrong. It's kind of cool to think about. Wouldn't it be neat if we had a Lincoln angel, you know? I hope he's good at his job, you know? I hope he does well. I, but I, who knows, okay? I don't know. I think more likely when John writes, if you'll notice in chapter 2, he begins to write to these churches, and he writes to the angel of the church at Ephesus, and then in verse 8, to the angel of the church at Smyrna, and then in verse uh, 12, to the angel of the church at Pergamon. Okay, I think it's much more likely that John is writing letters to the messengers of the churches, to the leadership of the church, the elders, the pastors, okay? That that's, makes more sense. It doesn't make sense to me that John would write a letter and send it to an angel. Where are you going to mail that dude, you know? I mean, where do you... If we do have an angel, how do you get a letter to him? I don't know, you know, but I mean, it could be that. I'm not telling you it's not. I'm just telling you it makes sense to me that it is the leadership of the church. And so what you have is a picture of where is the, the present day glorified Jesus. He is in the midst of the church and he has us in his hand. The reason I think that's so important is because there's a lot of people today. Here's what's really trendy. It's really trendy to be in on Jesus and out on the church. Okay, that's just really, that, that's like the current trend. You hear a lot of people say that. You hear a lot of people say, well, I'm all for Jesus. I'm just out on the church. You know, I'm all for Jesus. I just, I just, I'm, I'm just not, I, I don't want there. You know, here's what you hear. You know, the, the church is not very impressive, right? Those people. I mean, when you look at Jesus here, eyes that blaze like fire, sword coming out of his mouth. I mean, wow, he's impressive. Us, not so much. Hey, I agree. Maybe you're here today and you've got one of those church stories, you know? How you were in on Jesus, but then the church disappointed you. You found out that they weren't all perfect. Hey, I don't mean to be prideful, but whatever story you got, I got ones that will trump it, okay? I mean, if you want stories about how the church is not perfect, let's go to lunch, you know? I mean, I, I, come on. Uh, yeah, Jesus knew that, okay? But uh, he's in the midst of the church. The church is his body, okay? First John, we just spent months there told us over and over again to love god you got to love his people 
okay? And Jesus is in the midst of his church. And here in the book of Revelation, he is purifying, he is disciplining, he is restoring his church. Now the glimpse of the Son of God. All right, so let's start in verse uh, 13. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest, okay, indicating royalty, a regal to kingliness, if you will. Verse 14, the hairs of his head were white like wool, white as snow. I kind of thought this service would like that, you know. Um, you know, it's interesting. Oh, come on. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. Daniel 7, the ancient of days is seen in that way. I think there's, there's an element of wisdom there. Uh, that's the way the Bible sees white hair, by the way. It's an element of wisdom, an element of experience and maturity. Okay, and I, I think there's some of that with the Son of God. He's the Son, but he's not, he's not young, okay? He's, he's ancient. He's eternal. But even more so, it indicates the holiness of Jesus Christ. Jesus is holy. He is always always perfect, always just, always loving, never wrong, never deficient, never lacking, never has an off day. In his presence, sin is revealed because Christ is holy. Notice the next image there. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Now, now, that's, that's a cool image to me because, first of all, the eyes tell something about the vitality, the condition of the person, okay? You know what my wife does? I've got two girls that are sick today. And she always does is she says, they're not feeling good. I can tell. Look at, her, look at their eyes. Yeah. Moms, you ever do that? Look at their eyes, you know? And evidently there's something about the eyes that moms can tell when they're not feeling good. And here's what I know. I can tell when someone's tired by their eyes, okay? In fact, this is a great view to have on Sunday morning, you know? Because you can tell, you can tell the condition of somebody by their eyes, you know? I mean, most people blink really rapidly, okay? But some of you, when you get tired, it's this pronounced slow blink. It's like this, you know? And when it gets to right here, I, even though I'm still preaching, I always have a little wager with myself. Is it going to come back open? You know? <laughs> but you can tell that, can't you? When someone's doing real well, what do we say? They had a sparkle in their eye, right? They had a gleam in their eye. Boy, their eyes twinkle. Boy, did you see when he opened that present? His eyes just lit up, right? So what, what, are, we, what are we saying there? You can tell somebody's vitality, the condition of, of, of their, their soul by their eyes. All right. Jesus' eyes are aflame with fire. They blaze with fire. Okay, the picture I got in my mind, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I got the picture of, of those fighter jets taking off from an aircraft carrier, and you know when they're really going to hit the thrust, they inject the fuel into the turbines, and they create that afterburner effect, you know, that blaze, you know, before they rocket off the carrier, all right? That's what I'm picturing John is seeing in the Son of God, Jesus, all right? Now, what is the significance of his eyes blazing with fire? What do you do with your eyes? You see, you see. What does the Bible say about Jesus seeing? He sees everything, okay? He, is, he sees and he judges everything. He misses nothing. You can't hide from him. I told you I went to my first, first horse show last week and I, I learned something uh, real quick about uh, horse shows and that you don't have to do it great all the time only when the judge is looking, you know? Because there's usually one judge and they're out there in the middle of that arena and everybody's riding around doing, you know, whatever the judge tells them to do, you know, prance, trot, whatever, all that stuff, you know? And, and, and so the judge may be looking at this side over here and you're riding around this corner. You can get bucked off, the horse roll over, you know? And as long as you get up, get back on, dust off and start going again before the judge turns around, it's all good. You can win the deal, you know? It's just if he's not looking, I think people think that about Jesus. 
You know why? Because you hear all the time people care a lot about what other people think. Scrambling around. What, what do other people think of me? You know, do, have I made a good impression? It doesn't matter. Literally, it does not matter what anybody else thinks. The one thing that matters eternally is what did Jesus see? And he sees everything. We're going to get in next week to these churches. So Jesus writes to these churches. You know what he writes every, every time? One of the first things he writes? Basically, I see you. Listen to Ephesus, verse 2. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. Okay, To Smyrna, verse uh, 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty. And then the slander of those that say they're Jews. Um, verse 13 to Pergamum. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Um, verse 19 to Thyatira. I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance. Um, to Sardis um, in verse 1 there of chapter 3. I know your works, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Jesus knows that. He says, I know you. People think you're alive, but I know you're dead. Philadelphia, verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door. Laodicea, verse 15, I know your works, that you're neither hot nor cold. What does he say to every church? I know you. What does he say to Lincoln Avenue? I know you. Lincoln, we're not hiding from Jesus. Okay, he knows. He knows the good things. He knows the work we've done. He knows the mission heart. He knows the Christ-centered relationships. He knows the discipleship that's going on. But he also knows the sin. He also knows where we fall and falter and fail. He also knows where we need to improve. He knows where we need to repent. He knows where we're in danger of his discipline and judgment. Jesus knows those things. He sees those things with eyes that blaze like fire. In Hebrews chapter 3. I'm sorry, four. He talks about the, the power of the word of God. In verse 12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit. And then in verse 13, it says, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who must give an account. The Bible says we are naked and exposed before the Lord Jesus Christ. What a powerful image, huh? I mean, when you think about being up in front Naked, okay, nobody, we don't want that, do we? No, I mean, there's a reason why we wear clothes. Thank you, huh, right? We don't, nobody wants that. Okay, but your soul is laid bare before God. He knows all of it. He knows your pride. He knows your insecurity. He knows you're faking it. He knows you're posing. He knows all of that. Whatever, whatever you're, whatever, however you're living, he knows that. We're laid bare before him. Notice next, his feet. Verse 15, like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. You know, when I, when I first saw that, I was thinking feet, you know, maybe foundation, kind of your, your stability. Okay, but, but in Psalms, this is very consistent in the Psalms. Look at Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. What does God the Father tell Jesus? Hey, you're here at my right hand until I make your enemies. The world is going to be your footstool. Jesus' feet of bronze. You ever have a little brother? You know how you conquer a little brother? You get him down on the ground. Not when your mom's looking, but all big brothers do this. You get him down on the ground and you put your foot right on his neck. I'm not saying do that. I'm saying some brothers do that. But that, that's a sign of, of victory, isn't it? 
Okay, Jesus. Jesus will have his bronze feet on the neck of his enemies. Next. His voice was like the roar of many waters. Man, you can't, you can't ignore a voice that roars like Niagara Falls, that roars like Yosemite Falls, that roars like you're sitting on a, on a stream in, in Colorado. From his mouth comes a two-edged sword. You know, you, you, this is so consistent in the Scriptures, okay? First of all, you, you see Jesus, Jesus having a sword, but it's not in his hand. It's never in his hand. It's, it's always coming out of his mouth, or consistently it's coming out of his mouth. And, and, and the reason for that is Jesus does not need to wield a sword, okay? He has a sword, but it's, it's, it's not, it doesn't need, you know, for us, we've got to use our strength and power against somebody. Okay, Jesus speaks. Go back to, the, to Genesis. God's going to build the world. What does he do? Rent some dozers, some backhoes? No, he speaks and it comes into existence. God's going to reveal himself. He speaks. I mean, that, 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 that is the way that God does a couple things. Number one, it is the way that he will refine and shape the church. Okay, so, so back to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharpening the two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God is going to use his word to shape the church. And so Jesus is coming with the sword of his word, and he's going to shape the church. Give you an example. Pergamum. It's the, the, the third church that he writes to here in uh, Revelation 2.23. No, 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 2.16. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Okay, so Jesus will make, he'll come to the church with the sword, okay, to shape and to, to mold and to refine Okay, he, he cuts as we respond to his word. In Isaiah 66, verse 2, he says, But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Okay, but other places, Jesus doesn't come to refine and to, to mold with his word. He comes to slay. Revelation 19, listen to this. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fear. Here's those feet of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh is a name that is written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So here's my question to you real quick. How do you know if the sword of God's word is coming to you to refine you, to shape you, or to slay you? Well, the easy answer to that is, what does his word do in your life right now? Okay, so, so if you look at your life and you're like, well, man, when I hear the word of God, maybe I, I read my Bible during the week, and man, when I see something in there and, and it's contrary to my life, I'm immediately convicted. 
And oh, I mean, I, I, can't, I can't go on, you know, and I, I try to push it away, but all I can, it's all I can think about all day long is that I'm disobedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm living in, in, in unconfessed sin, and it just gets all over me, and I come to the point where I'm like, okay, I, I'm done. I can't live that away anymore. Lord, I'm turning away from that. I'm repenting, and I'm yielding myself to you. Okay, he's coming to you to shape you. But listen, if you're here today, and the word of God comes, and you have the ability, and, and I understand this perfectly because this was me for 18 years. You have the ability to hear it, consider it, chuck it, ignore it, decide for yourself. Here's what I used to do. Well, that applies to everybody else, but not to me. God understands. Me and God, we got a deal. It's like he's a used car salesman. You, you're going you're gonna to cut the legs out of this guy on a bargain, huh? Whose eyes blaze like fire? Whose face shines like the sun? I don't think you will. How do you respond to the word of God? How does it hit you? Right now, I'm not asking in the future, I'm asking right now. This is how we know where we're at. What, what does the word of God do in my life? What does it do presently in me? Last description here. For John's response into verse 16. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Pastor Gary had a great verse. Uh, it's real special to link in this whole chapter is. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. We looked at this the other night. For God who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God's manifold blessings and God's manifold glory, all of his attributes shine, radiate from the face of Christ like the sun. I was driving back from Alva the other day and I was hit Moreland right as the sun was coming down. It was below the visor, you know, but it's still right there. And so I had my sunglasses on. And, you know, here's, here I found, here's the strange thing. I found myself continuing to look at it, you know. I mean, it's, it's right there, and I know I can't look at it, but I, I keep trying. Why? It's glorious. I mean, it's this blazing ball of, of, of fire in the sky, and I keep looking, and I got to look away. I keep looking, I got to look away, okay. John, that's what John sees here, the face of Christ blazing with the glory of God. Now, what is the response to this kind of vision, to see this Jesus? Verse 17, when I saw him. I fell at his feet as though dead. It's not an uncommon response in the Bible, actually. Look at Ezekiel. Look at Daniel. Look at Joshua. Okay? And, and, and think about this. John knew Jesus. John spent three years living with Jesus. They ate together. You know, camped out at night. You know, he, he was the beloved disciple. Rested his head on, on Jesus' shoulder in the Lord's Supper. But Jesus is not in his humanity anymore, okay? In the sense of, 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 of fully human, a fully God on earth. No, no, no. He is the, the dead, resurrected Jesus now. He's not on the cross. He's not in the grave. Now he's exalted to his glory. And John sees him and drops to his face. It's too much. And here's what I would say about that. If you're bored with Jesus, I understand I used to be. If you're unimpressed, uninspired, unmoved, you simply have not seen his glory. That, that's the problem. You just haven't seen his glory. I pray that you would see him today. I pray that, that he would show himself to you, that you would see the resurrected Christ. If you're able just to ignore his voice, if you're able to hear his word and it hits your life and you're able just to push that away and act like it doesn't matter, listen, you've not seen the glorified Jesus Christ. You're not taking him seriously. So he falls on his face as though dead and then look what happens. 
Jesus lays his right hand on him. It's interesting. You go to the transfiguration, Matthew 17, and, and Peter, James, and John are up on the mountain, and Jesus is transfigured, and God speaks from the heaven, this is my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased. Remember that? And they fall to their faces, terrified. It says Jesus came and touched them. Symbolic of John belongs to Jesus. Verse five, here's what John says about himself. It says, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and father, to him be glory. Listen, if you're a believer today, if the blood of Jesus Christ has been applied to your account, if you've turned away from your sin and put your faith in him and been joined to Jesus, your sins are forgiven. And even as you see the resurrected, glorified Jesus Christ, he comes at you not as an enemy, but he comes at you as a friend, as your king. And he puts his right hand on you. And here's what he says, fear not. Why? I am the first and the last. Oh, I love that. I am the first and the last. Now, now, unless you think that's not very significant, he says it three times in three different ways in chapter one alone. Okay, let me read them to you. Verse four, okay? Uh, John of the seven churches of Asia, grace to you and peace. Peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come. Go down to verse eight. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. And now in verse 17, fear not, I am the first and the last. What, what, is, what is Jesus saying here? What is God saying? God is saying, I am the constant reality of the universe. If we took a vote in here today and said, hey, is the United States of America the greatest country that's ever, ever been? Is it the greatest country in freedom, in democracy, in, in, um, in military power? I think probably the majority would say yes, okay? But let me, let me tell you something. The United States of America is 239 years old formally, okay? God has sneezes that are longer than 239 years, all right? I mean, I mean, that's a blip on the radar of God. There were billions of years stretching backward into eternity past when there was no USA. There will be billions of years stretching forward into eternity when there will not be a USA. God alone is the constant reality of the universe. The only thing that will matter for eternity is what is connected to Him. Let me show you something. I grew up in the 80s. I was in junior high in the 80s. If you lived in the 80s, some of you, this is not going to make any sense, okay? Some of you, though, it will. If you lived in the 80s, this is how you wore your pants. So if you were cool, okay? Not everybody. But if you, if you rolled up your jeans like that, you know what that meant? That meant you had it together, right there. You had it together. That meant you're wise. I mean, in my junior high, this meant you're in the right group, Okay? You know what it means today? You're stupid. <laughs> you know what it meant in 1990? You're stupid. Okay? Now, 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 the reason I bring that up is because most everything, unless it's connected to God, is just that. Okay? The wisdom of the world today, all right? You're, it's a vapor. Your business, a vapor. Your ideas, your values, your convictions, your wisdom, your trends, your buildings, your achievements, your awards, your position, your industry, your songs, your stories. It's all a vapor unless it's connected to the one who was, who is, and who is to come. The Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. God is the constant reality of the cosmos. He alone is what matters. Man, can you picture how that hit John? John's in... 
Well, John's preaching the gospel in Ephesus, and what do the people of Ephesus say? Well, you know, I'll tell you what the government says. Man, you're, you're a rebel. Man, you talk about this sin. You talk about these values. That is stupid. You're ignorant. We don't want to hear you. We don't want to hear about your Bible. So much so they cart off a 90-year-old man and put him out on an island in the ocean to die. But the king of kings comes to John and says, Listen, John, fear not. I'm the first and the last. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I was, I am, and I will be, John. Don't worry about these folks. They're vapors, John. He says, I'm the living one. You see that? I'm the living one. He's alive. Not, not, not just alive, but he is the source of life. John eleven twenty five 25 and 26 says, Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. If you're connected to the living one, you're connected to life. That's, that's the glory of the resurrection. If Christ had died for our sins, been buried in the tomb, and the story ends there, you're connected to a corpse, okay? You're connected to a dying Jesus. And though he may have made a valiant effort to die for your sins, the fact would be he's dead. But the reality, the undisputed historical reality, is that Jesus is alive. John sees him here, the resurrected living one who is alive, who died and is alive forevermore. That's what Jesus says there. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. Jesus is the indisputable eternal winner over death and the grave. There'll never be another contest. He cannot be killed. He cannot be challenged. He cannot be thwarted or stopped. He cannot be weakened or diminished. He is unstoppable, untamable, uncontrollable, and indestructible. And what that means for you and I, if we're connected to him, we're connected to life forevermore. In Hebrews chapter 7, listen to what this says. It says, he is our high priest by the power of an indestructible life. You, you can't kill him. In verse 25, it says he is our priest who always intercedes for us. In Ephesians 2, 5 through 7, it tells us that he's going to put us in his care. And he's going to lavish his kindness on us forevermore because he lives forevermore. You're connected to the one who's life. That's the glory of the resurrection. That's the glory of Easter Sunday. Tethered to Jesus. Tethered to life. Notice the last thing he says. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. How encouraging is that? Death, the thing that can stop you, the thing that can separate you from all that is good, the thing that can take you from life. Hey, Jesus got the keys. He's got the keys. He owns it. He owns death, and he owns Hades. And so here's my question to you on Easter Sunday. How are you going to respond to this Jesus? How are you going to respond to him? Are you, are you, going, to, are you going to put him as a, oh, a com, an acquaintance? Well, Jesus, I, I know who you are. I'll give you a nod every once in a while, but hey, you know, I know you got your opinions, but I've got mine, Jesus, you know? And I went to OSU, you know? And my opinions are awesome. And so I'm going to do it my way, Jesus, because I know you got your opinions. But I'm going to do it mine. Hey, let me tell you. If your opinions are not Jesus, they're rolled jeans. That's what they are. 
I mean, for real. It's going to be good for a couple years, and, and then what it really was is going to be shown forever. But Jesus, he's the first and the last. He's the constant reality of the universe. What he thinks is right. You've got to follow him. He's life. Life forevermore. Man, good news. Father, thank you for this news. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this glimpse of, G, of, of Jesus, of you. Of you. <laughs> wow. You're glorious, God. You're awesome. In every way, perfect. And God, we submit ourselves to you. We, God, we, uh, we bow before you, Father, and we just ask you to, to show yourself to us. Father, we pray that you'd enable us to obey. Father, whatever you're, you're speaking to us, what, whatever word you bring to our life, Father, we want to submit to that. We want to yield to you because you're our king. Thank you for life. Thank you for life eternal, life forevermore. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name.